I want you to take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 11. You know, there's a lot of things can be said in just a few words. You don't, you don't have to have a lot of words to have a lot of meaning to them. Like the, uh, you know, the boy that says to his girlfriend as they were out there in the boat, moon, all that. He says, uh, why don't you say those three little words that'll just make my feet dangle in the air? She says, go hang yourself. Now, see, he's thinking, I love you. And she's thinking of something else. Little words can carry a big impact. They have great meaning. So you'll be surprised that in the Bible, how much truth is said in so few words. The Word of God is very, very rich. And so when you start looking at some of these things, and yet it says just a few words, there's a whole story behind those words. So here in the book of 1 Kings in chapter 11, I want to just look at five words, five words that carry a tremendous message and a warning with it. But to notice that even in the New Testament, the Bible says that Paul, in speaking to the Corinthians, he said, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 words that people can't understand. So five words understood is better than 10,000 words that are not understood. So look there in verse 1 of chapter 11. It says, Solomon loved many strange women. Five words. Solomon loved many strange women. What can you get from that verse? What does it say? Solomon did something he shouldn't have done. And what is a strange woman? You know, they come from other worlds. And they had one eye. Or they're purple. They're strange looking. What made them strange is that they didn't belong to him. And he was not supposed to do this. There was warnings from God. But something so important as Solomon loved strange women. Look what he says. And he talked about together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Amorites, Edomites, Zidonians, and the Hittites, and the Pizzarites, and the Hivites, and the Urlites, and his lights, and dislikes. It doesn't matter what country they came from. It was that he loved the people God told Israel not to do. He told them not to do it. You know, a lot of people use the word love as an excuse to do what they want to do. Well, like two men who want to get married. Well, we love each other. So? Still don't make it right. You may love somebody else other than your wife. Still don't make it right. Still wrong. Love isn't justification for doing something. God says don't love the things of the world. It means you can, but you just shouldn't. It's still wrong. Love doesn't make things right. Does it? No, it doesn't make it right. You may love to rebel against authority, but it doesn't make it right. So there's a lot of people who love the wrong thing. Now, here in America, you'd be surprised how many people and states are justifying same-sex marriage. 
Did y'all notice any of this? Did you know it's getting worse and worse and worse? So even when the, uh, the Republicans lost the race, they said, you need to move more toward being inclusive. You got to change. You're too strict. You got to open the doors. Let all these other groups in. What was wrong with somebody saying, okay, here's the Constitution. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. Let's educate the people on what it says so that they can be wise in their decisions. But see, remember I told you that numerically, eventually, we cannot win. Because sooner or later, it gets worse and worse and worse. Because you produce more people that gets on the dole for the government and less people paying. And therefore, you can't win. So um, it's like trying today. Try to convince everybody not to have Christmas. Think it'll work? Even though everybody knows it ain't real. That there is no Santa Claus. But try to convince people to change it. They ain't going to do that. Why? Because it's so much fun. The element of surprise. And how in the world are you going to get the people in America to vote against Santa Claus? Because when Santa Claus brings you something and it's free, you're not going to vote against Santa Claus. And it'll get worse and worse and worse. Well, if you're getting yours, I want mine. And therefore, we don't worry about the next generation as long as we get out of here with everything we can get. So anyway, I want you to look at this. In verse 2, he says, And of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, saith, uh, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely, here, look at this, Surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. God says it's wrong. Solomon knew that it was wrong, but Solomon did it anyway. You think there's Christians today that do pretty much whatever they want to do? They know it's wrong. They know God says no, but they're going to do it anyway. And they don't think about the next generation. Solomon wasn't thinking about what happens down the road. He really didn't care what happened down the road. Is he getting what he wants now? So evidently, these women, they probably weren't the ugliest women on the planet. He probably had somebody out spying, get all the good-looking ones. And get what he says. In verse 3, And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. And it came to pass, you ought to underline this, when he was old, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect or right with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abominations of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemos, and the abominations, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wife. 
What made these wives strange was they had strange gods. And they turned his heart away from the true and living God. You wouldn't think that the devil could package something so beautiful that could turn your heart away from the Lord. But evidently, the wisest man in the world, the Bible says he was, fell by that little shapely beauty that is the lust of the eyes and provides for the lust of the flesh and gave to him supposedly the pride of life. That's what he lived for. And to think how wicked it is in God's eyes. But the things that are wicked and are abomination to God, see, it doesn't look like it's that bad in our eyes. And so there's people throughout the nation. Now, if God judges, you know, different areas of the country, which I believe he does, if Christians are there, Christians have to suffer the consequences right along with the rest. It rains upon the just and the unjust. And it pours out judgment upon the just and the unjust. You see, God put us here to be lights unto the world, to be the salt, the preservative. And sometimes we just don't do our job. And there's a price to pay. The world gets wicked. Look what it says in verse 9. And the Lord was very pleased with Solomon and didn't mind it because, after all, he was the king. And he can do things and get away with it. No, because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. So, see, it wasn't that he went after the other gods, that there was a, a medium there that drove him to it. Women who had strange gods. And so, therefore, he had to satisfy and please these women that had strange gods. And he took them from everywhere that he was told not to do it. Some people live and learn. Some people never learn. So the Lord says this in verse 11. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from you and will give it to thy servant. I'm going to take it from you and give it to somebody else. And so even though it didn't happen in his lifetime, it could have shortened his lifespan. And then later on, the kingdom was divided. And he makes the statement in verse 13. He says, nevertheless, in verse 12, I will not do it in thy days for your dad's sake. For your dad's sake. He says, but I'm going to do it out of the house of your sons or the hands of your son. In verse 13, howbeit I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to thy son for David, my servant's sake. And for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. And get verse 14. And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon. See, because of Solomon's Bad decisions, there's a price he had to pay even toward the end of his life. There was consequences that affected the whole nation after he had died. So can you just do whatever you want and get away with it? No, there's always a price to pay. You see what he says in verse 25, And he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon. In other words, 
it's like having a thorn in your side. You know, a big old blister on your foot. A pain in your side. Something happening that causes you just irritability. In other words, you could have had peace and comfort. Instead, you know, you had to go play the fool. So is there a price to pay? Yeah, there's a price to pay. Look in Nehemiah chapter 13, the book of Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah in chapter 13. It's on page 556. Page 556, Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Years and years later, Solomon was used as an example. To the people that had been in captivity, and while they were in captivity, they took them strange wives. It means they were not equally yoked together. This is why the Bible says, be not unequally yoked together. In other words, an individual should always marry somebody of the same faith. You should marry somebody who believes the way you believe. That your God is their God. And if there is not this, it should not be done. It will cause trouble down the road. Listen to what God says. And so he makes this statement here in verse 23. In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod and Ammon and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. So you see a problem. They had married strange women. They had children by them. And then their children were speaking their, their language. And now they've come back to Jerusalem, back to rebuild the temple, back to rebuild the walls under Ezra and Nehemiah. Did they have problems? Oh, did they have problems? See, not everybody's on the same page. When you don't, you always have trouble. So he says in verse 25, And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain ones of them, plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughter unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Now get verse 25. And I smote certain ones of them, plucked off their, that sounds violent. I mean, he slapped them around. He beat the tar out of them. I mean, ain't that what it says? I mean, is that what it said or not? I'm not making this up. And so he says in verse 26, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel nevertheless. You see, God doesn't use perfect people. There are none. David had problems. Saul had problems. And believe it or not, so do you. And so do I. Everybody's got a problem. Because if you live in this world, in this physical body, you have an old sinful nature, and you got problems. You're always fighting the sins of the mind. The things that you say, the tone in which you say it. So he says, Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause him to sin. They influenced him. 
he, if he hadn't have took those wives, they wouldn't have had their strange gods. They wouldn't have affected him. See, that's why in the Bible, in the book of Romans, he makes a statement. To not make provision for the flesh. It means don't give yourself an opportunity to get in trouble. Stay away from the trouble. Don't see how close you can walk to the edge of the line. For example, this uh, guy, Petraeus. One of the most honored men, a great man. Everybody looked up to him, thought he was a you know, great servant. And then to be brought down by a strange woman. A woman that he had no business being with. Why? Because he had a wife of 37 years. And I don't care what she looked like. She wore a sack dress and it fit. So what? He's committed. But no, he plays the fool. Is there a price to pay for that? Look how easy it is. And yet he's head of the CIA. He should have known somebody's going to find out. You think at least he would know how to hide something. But you never think, I'm not going to get caught. Nobody will ever know. She writes a book. She writes a book. What do you think? If somebody will do something wrong with you, they'll do something wrong about you. It's just like gossip. Somebody who'll gossip to you will gossip about you. Did you know that? But be that as it may, a fool is born every day. And so he says this in verse 27. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God and marry in strange wives? In the last part of verse 20, he says, Therefore I chased him from me. Now, you need to understand there's all kinds of things that can be said in just five little bitty words. Have you ever heard these little words? In the beginning, God created. Five little words. In the beginning, God created. God created. And in God creating, it means that evolution isn't true. In the beginning, God created that there is a creator. In the beginning, it starts with him. And therefore, God had to always have been. No one could have created God. Or whoever created God would have been the creator. But God has always been and will always be. And yet you stop and think of how wonderful it is that so much truth could be said in so few little bitty words. You know, in the book of Exodus, chapter 14, it makes this statement. He says, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, who is I? Who is the I? That's the Lord, God. When I see the blood, sounds kind of gross. What do you mean when I see the blood? But if you know the story, you know how precious it is. In the book of Exodus in chapter 12. When I see the blood, what will happen? 
I will what? I will pass over you. I will pass over you. Five little words. But what a story. Something so simple. And yet it's a deep, great truth. How much can be said in a language when you have just the right words? So he says, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Pass over. What is the Passover? So then you can go into the Passover. Who was our Passover? Christ. Christ was our Passover. And whenever we believe that he died for us, his blood was like put to our account, like we were washed in his blood. And when he sees the blood, because we are what we call under the blood, I will pass over you. It means that you will not die. If you will not die, you will live forever. If you will not die, you will live forever. You have eternal security. I will pass over you. You will not die. Now, we know that that's talking about when Israel was down into Egypt. And yet after that, it was always, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. They were to celebrate the Passover every year. They had to celebrate it. So, five little words. Leviticus 17, 11 makes this statement. For it is the blood. For it is the blood. For it is the blood. It is the blood. It is the blood. That does what? What is the purpose of the blood? The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your sins. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. It is the blood. And so therefore, five little words that says such a wonderful thing, such deep things. You see, when you study the scriptures, don't just rush through them. You look for some truths out of these things because God says an awful lot in just a few words. In the book of Joshua 24, remember he was talking to uh, the elders and all there, and mainly it was to be for the people. And he was nearing the end of his life, he says, but we will serve the Lord. But we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Five little words, but think of what it says. It means there's a man that's taking a stand and saying, this is what we are going to do. That's for me and my house. Because you can't be responsible to make anybody else do anything. But you have to determine, this is what me and my house are going to do. You're the leader, be the leader. You're the man, be the man. Be the man. Decide, this is what we're going to do. As for me and my house, we will. We will what? We will. That's determination. That's a commitment. That's going out on the land. That's stating something. We will serve the Lord. And not just any God. Because he says those are some that want to serve the God on the other side of the flood. But we will serve the Lord. So you make up your mind. This is what we will do. 
there's a, another little five words that's really, really wonderful. But look here in Psalms 23. Psalms 23, the 23rd Psalm. The 23rd Psalm. And look what it says there. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I wonder if you can get a message out of that. Those five little words. The Lord is my shepherd. And it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Want for what if the Lord's your shepherd? It's the shepherd's responsibility to take care of the sheep. Are you his sheep? Do you really believe that the shepherd, your shepherd, is able to take care and provide and protect and feed his sheep? He can as long as he wants and desires, and you don't have to worry about it. But you see, there's a lot of trouble that goes on in the world that causes a lot of people a lot of worry, a lot of fear. There's people that are scared to death by what's going to happen in the country, what's going to happen in the world. There's people up there that just went through this Hurricane Sandy and then another little snowstorm up ahead. And think of how bad some of those people have it. And yet look how, in spite of everything, knowing it was going to happen, how little prepared FEMA was in coming to the rescue. It shouldn't have had to happen all over again just like it did down in Katrina in New Orleans. They didn't have telephone poles. They didn't have supplies. They didn't have gasoline. How come they couldn't have had a whole bunch of gasoline trucks stationed at different places anticipating? You see, so much could be done, but they don't think about it. It's not going to be that bad. You know, some people are finding out what it's like not to have any food to eat and not to have a a home to live in, or I guess you could say clothes to wear, and everything lost. What would happen if it happened all over the United States and all of us were in the same boat? And there was nobody to bail us out. Because one of these days I do believe that if God should tarry, there's going to be a mushroom cloud over some major city in this country. We've asked for it. We deserve the chastening of God. Because, you see, you cannot legislate all these sins and make it right in the eyes of God. You see, God's word hasn't changed, and what God says is wrong is still wrong. And if it's not corrected, we'll bring the chastening hand of God.